This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Find 1 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bible, if you would, and we're going to spend some time there in just a few minutes. Uh, welcome to our guests. We're glad that you're here. We're in a series um, this month on uh, shepherds and sheep leading and following in the flock of God, and, and we're talking about who those leaders are and what kind of men they are. This morning, how does God measure his shepherds? Um, as we seek as a, as a church this month through the scriptures, as we seek to to, to learn how the very first churches were led, there really is only one place for us to look, and that's the Bible. This is kind of our guidebook um, that tells us such things. And the very story of the first churches is found in your Bible. It's, it's a book called the Acts of the Apostles. It follows the Gospels and tells how the church began and how it went in that first generation. As wise men, and we're going to say that the, the apostles were wise. They, they learned from Jesus. They began to grow in their experience and their maturity as they naturally did what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Jesus went out and he selected men to be disciples, to mentor, so that when the time came for the apostles, these original pastors of the church at Jerusalem, for them to leave, they had guys in place to hand the leadership over to, and they went out, the apostles, into all the world. The pastors of the church stayed right there. So here's what we read. Just summarize some things in the book of Acts about the elders. We read about the, the elders in chapter 11, handling finances. We read about them in chapter 15, making judgments about uh, doctrinal controversies. And then we read about them handling practical matters in the church in chapter 21. But there's a role that I want to discuss this morning and spend our time with today that is as important as the others, and that is teaching the church the Word of God. Elders are teachers. And God seems to put, if you read the scriptures and the epistles, especially you get in the first and first Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus, he puts a premium on the teaching of the word that elders do. Uh, David, a couple last week, I think it was, or the week before, we we kind of went back to the Psalm 23. In the beginning of that Psalm, you know it well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He, he leads me to the green pastures, speaking of the teaching responsibility of the elders of the church. So this morning, how do our pastors teach us? How do the elders that God's called to lead the church, how do they do the teaching? Several ways. And, uh, and they all work, and they're all important. First of all, we teach in gatherings of the church. That's where we are this morning. We're gathering as a church together on Sunday morning, and on Sunday morning here, and if you're new to us every Sunday morning, we spend time opening up the scriptures, the Bible, and saying this is what God is saying here in the Word of God. So we teach in the gatherings. That's my primary responsibility. The other elders help out every so often in, in doing that, but primarily I'm the one up here as the teaching pastor doing that. Secondly, we teach by personally mentoring younger believers. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, to find some faithful men 
there in the church at Ephesus. Find some faithful men, Timothy, and teach them, and then teach them so that they can teach others who follow and continue that going on down through the generations. Elders teach by, by gathering some faithful men around them and, and teaching them the word of God. It may be a one-on-one relationship, discipling, or maybe one-on-two. It may be in small groups and so forth, classes that we might teach. A third way that elders teach is in giving counsel, rebuke, and reproof. Often that's done, that's, a, that's a indivi- an individual kind of a teaching or maybe to a, a group or, or sometimes it's done in, in the large gathering as well. Counseling, uh, re- rebuke, rebuke is saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, stop it. That's rebuke. And reproof. Now here's what we need to do to correct that and so we don't go back there and do that again. But that's another way that elders teach. We covered some of that last Sunday as we talked about discipline in the flock. And then elders teach us by exhorting us. Exhorting us. Exhortation is sharing how the Bible is applied to life. Here's what the Bible says. Now here's how God wants us to live it out. It's the practical aspect of teaching the word of God. And then pastors, lastly, we teach, and this is where we're going to focus this morning, teach by example. The writer of the book of Hebrews said to those Christians in the first century, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. And as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, watch their lives, they're setting an example. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Now, for that reason, this whole example thing, which is very important, the Bible gives us a couple of lists of the character qualities that God's looking for in those he calls to be shepherds and the visible example of their lives. What is it, what is it that we need to be looking for? What kind of example are they setting in, in different areas of their lives? One list is in 1 Timothy 3 that we're going to read today. The other is in Titus 1. Altogether in 1 Timothy 3, there are 15 qualifiers, and in Titus 1, most of those are repeated. We're going to focus today in 1 Timothy 3. Now, let me start by saying this before we read the passage. A lot of people are under the assumption that to, to be an elder means you must be a Bible genius. Right? You got to know, and, and, and I know what some of you are thinking. Well, we, Rick, you proved that's not correct. You know, you're up there teaching us the Bible. You don't have to be a genius about the Bible to be a leader, to be a shepherd, to be a pastor. There's nothing in the scriptures about having a degree from a seminary. And, and why, and then not that seminary is a bad thing. I have a seminary degree, but there's nothing in there about seminary. Why is that? Well, in the first century, how many seminaries were there? You know, the seminaries were when elders would sit down with a a group of guys, maybe one or two or three, and begin to disciple them and lead them to grow in the faith and see them take the place of leadership in the church. No seminaries back then. Um, It's not about being a a pastor or a a shepherd or an elder. By the way, for our guests, I will use a lot of terms interchangeably because that's how they're using scripture, pastor, shepherd, elder, elder overseer, all refer to the same responsibility, the same office in the church. It's not about uh, having a charming, charismatic personality. It's not about having nice hair. It's not about any of those things. It's about who the man is. I know a lot of churches, they go searching for a pastor and they have things that they're looking for. And I read their ads in the, in the, in the Christian, the state Baptist newspaper and so forth, you know, 
Here's who we need. And they list a whole lot of things that I look and say, but what about his character, you know? And, and, and especially if a guy, you know, they get these resumes and they read them and they look at them and, and they, they highlight the ones that say, and my wife plays the piano. They go, oh yeah, two for here. We get, not only get a preacher, we get a piano player as well. So what does the Bible say? Who are we to look for in the church to be pastors, to be elders, to be leaders? It's about who the man is. First Timothy chapter three, verse one. This is a trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. You can take this to the bank, believe it, it's true. It's faithful. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to be an overseer in the church, overseer again last week, he oversees, he looks over, he watches over, he manages, he, he cares for the church. If anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Paul says it's a great thing that that man is desiring. It's an overseer. So jot down in your notes, eldership begins with a call from God. Scripture calls it a desire. It's a, it's a want to. My calling, personally, so when were you called, Rick? I, I, my calling goes back to when I was 15. I became a Christian when I was 10. And then when I was 15, it just kind of, and I can, I, if you want to take the time, not right now, to hear about that, I'd be glad to share that story. But I was 15-year-old sophomore in high school when just all of a sudden I knew this desire in my heart for what I would be doing the rest of my life changed. I already had ideas what I wanted to do and be in life. I wanted to be either a professional baseball player, and I was playing on the sophomore high school baseball team as a sophomore, and I said, you know what, if I'm really going to be a pro, I should be at the varsity level by now, and I wasn't, so I knew that's probably not going to happen. Or I wanted to be an attorney, a lawyer. I wanted to argue in the courtroom to put you in jail. No, but I wanted to, to, I wanted to be an attorney, and, and uh, that was really my passion, and suddenly that desire changed. God changed that desire in my life. Some pastors are called to shepherd God's flock while they work in other careers. We have a couple of them that, of our pastors that do that. Others will be career shepherds, meaning they are financially supported by the church to do their, to do their ministry, to do their pastoring. And Paul would address that uh, in this letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, and in letters to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, he, he talks about that. And here in said Church, we have both volunteer and staff paid elders in our church. We have a combination of both. But whether we're volunteer or whether we're not, we're all pastors, those of us who are. We're all called by God. We're on a peer level. There's no boss pastor and lesser pastor. There's no pope and cardinals. It's all, we're all pastors together and have the same responsibility before God. And one of the ways a man knows, how does a man know that he's qualified or called to be a pastor? And the answer is that God has qualified him. You look at these qualifications, and if God has qualified you, perhaps, and he's put the desire in your heart, then perhaps he's called you to do that. But let me also add this. No man who's called by God to be a pastor believes that he deserves that position or that he is worthy of that position. We're all taken by surprise, frankly, when we know that this is what God wants us to do. I was. But it's something God does, and the congregation recognizes, the church realizes this person is called to be a pastor because we see these things happening in his life. They recognize it. So elders must have not only a calling, 
Beginning of verse 2, they must have godly character. I'm going to read verse 2, and then we're going to kind of jump down to the rest of them. But let me stop before I read. Godly character. What is your character? Someone, I don't know who came up with this definition, but I've heard it for years, and I haven't heard anything better. But your character is who you are when nobody else is watching. That's your character. Who you are when nobody else is watching, that's, your, that's who you really are. That's what you're made of. And these things that we're going to read through here in character, they they're all are supposed to be, must be present in the elders or the potential elders' life. Paul uses the present tense with these because you'll notice he said they must be, not must have been, not will be one day. He said they must be, which means it's present tense and it's ongoing in the pastor's life. And that's because of grace. And because of the amazing transformation that God does in a life when we put our faith in Christ for salvation, he forgives our sins, doesn't he? All of them. He transforms us. He makes us new. He renews our minds. So the question is, as we're looking through these, who are they in character? And he lists 15 different things, all right? He says they are, first of all, above Reproach. I'm going to kind of fly through these, not spend a lot of time with them because of the time we have this morning. They're above reproach. That does not mean perfection. There are no per- the, the last perfect man that was nailed to a cross for things he did not do, uh, Jesus Christ. Before him, the last perfect man was Adam until he ate the fruit. So the, we're not looking for perfect people to be elders. The Greek word here means that there is literally nothing in his life that someone can put their hand on. There's nothing that anybody can reach out and point to in his life that's a lifestyle that's sinful or a character flaw. It means he doesn't live a double life. He's not a hypocrite. It means, one way to say it that we're all familiar with is that he's walking the talk, right? He's living the life. He's above reproach. Secondly, it says he's the husband of one wife. Now, it doesn't say one wife at a time. All right, that's not what it means. It's talking about being the literally, the Greek is he is a one woman man. He is totally devoted to the one woman in his life. Now, let me give you a little Greek here so we understand what the Bible is saying and we can understand what it's not saying. The word here for man or male or husband in the Greek is the word aner, A-N-E-R, if you want to know. Aner, and it means male. Right? It means, and that's the only meaning of that word. It doesn't mean mankind. It means male. He must be the, the husband, the man of one wife. The word for wife is the Greek word gune. Now, guys, don't shorten that to goon, okay? Goon, gune. And you say, what is that? And, and here's something interesting. There, we have words that come from Greek words, and one of the words that comes from gune is the word gynecology. All right, which means female stuff. All right, that's what it means. Am I right, ladies? Female stuff. A gynecologist is a female stuff doctor. All right, so a husband, a man of one woman, male and female, devoted to the one woman in his life. It does not say, and there's no parentheses, there's no other line, and if God wanted to say, had Paul write this, he would have done so. It does not say, a one-man woman. If anybody wants to be a pastor, he must be a one. It doesn't say that, which tells us one of the places in the Bible that tells us 
eldership is limited to men, right? Third thing, he is self-controlled. Self-controlled, what does that mean? He's clear-headed. He can make sound, wise judgments, decisions. He has discernment. Uh, He's not controlled by other factors. He's self-controlled, has his life under control. He is next sensible. Means he's not impulsive. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're an impulse buyer, but some of you are. You know, you see it, it comes out, it's new, and you got to have it, and so you buy it. Or, or you walk into a store and they've got the sign that says sale, and you figure I'm going to save a lot of money by buying these things. You know, got to have it. See it, got to have it. Impulse buyer. That's why they tell us they tell us don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry, because you will shop based upon your physical impulse that says feed me, and you see all the good stuff, and you start filling up the basket. It happens to me all the time. I go in for milk and bread, and I come out with $300 worth of groceries, you know. I don't want to have those anymore. Um, Self-controlled, he has discernment. Sensible, not impulsive. Does not operate solely on his feelings. Some of us are hardwired. How can I put it this way? When when it goes to emotion and it goes to feelings, some of us are hardwired on 110, right? Some of us are hardwired with 220, you know? So, I mean, we are everything by how I feel about it and the emotion of the time. An elder can't operate that way, cannot be that way. Doesn't operate on his feelings. He's respectable. What does that mean? That means he lives an orderly, decent life. That people look and they have respect for how he's living his life. He's hospitable. That doesn't mean that he goes and visits sick people in the hospital. Hospitable means he's made his home open to others. He welcomes others into his home, whether it be in a small group, whether it be just company coming over, whether it be, you know, you see somebody that needs a place to stay and you say, come stay with us. He opens his home, his home, he realizes In Spanish, it would be mi casa es su casa. You know what I mean? My house is your house. He realizes that my house is not my house. My property is not my property. It all belongs to the Lord. So he opens his home up to others. Um, He's not addicted to wine. In fact, I think the principle here is that he shouldn't have any addictions at all. He's not addicted to wine. He's not drinking all the time. He's not a drunk. He's not an alcoholic, if you want to call it that. He's not addicted to wine. But here's what addictions do. Whatever the addiction. Addictions are things that pull me away from my love for Christ. Addictions are things that pull me away from my devotion to Jesus. As a Christian, I'm to be addicted to one thing and one only, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a kid... Back in the days of the Jesus movement in the early 70s, bumper stickers became, kind of became the fad back in the late 60s and early 70s. That's when, that's when they came out. And I remember the Jesus movement, and I lived there in Southern California where it exploded, and I remember seeing bumper stickers kids would put on their cars, and they would say, I'm hooked on Jesus, meaning I'm addicted to Christ. And I remember my parents thinking, oh, that's horrible to say that. I'm hooked. It's like a drug addiction. Well, it's an addiction. It's something I I cannot live without him, right? So we should not be addicted, elders, to anything whatsoever. Not a bully, but gentle. He doesn't solve arguments by punching somebody out. 
Remember bullies in school? And, and, you know, I find it amazing now that bullying's become such a big thing. But we've always had bullies, you know. But way back in the, when I started school in the 60s, in elementary school, there were bullies in the school, you know. That's, that's why I became such a fast runner. Um, I, I got away from them, you know. I, you know I'd rather not fight. And um, so bullies, he's not that kind of a person that he solves everything by, by physical bullying. Instead, the opposite of that would be he's somebody who's gentle with others, patient with others, not quarrelsome. He's not a guy who lives with a chip on his shoulder. And there are people like that. They're always, he, he's not an angry man. He's not greedy, Paul says. Not greedy. The opposite of that is a good way to understand what that means. By the way, why, why is it important that an elder not be a greedy man? We, we said this earlier in Acts chapter 11. One of the things that they do is they, they manage the church's finances. And you can imagine what might happen if, if you've got somebody who's greedy, personally greedy, and there's this bank account, and maybe he has the opportunity to get into it, which our elders really do not. But if he had that opportunity, Paul, um, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So he can't be greedy. But the opposite of greedy helps us understand who he should be. And that is the opposite of greedy would be he's generous. Does he give and give generously, and give things away. Is he a generous kind of person with what he has? Then he manages his own household competently. That would include all aspects of his family life, his, his marriage, his children. Uh, he pays his mortgage. He's, uh, he, um, he takes care of things around the house. He manages his household properly. And tied to that one is the next one, having his children under control with all dignity. Now, whether you look at that and say his children live a dignified life or you look at it where I think maybe the emphasis probably is is that he, he raises his children and manages his children in a dignified way. He's not a bully to them either. He, he's got a dignity in how he treats his kids. But how do they respond to him? You know, the old joke is, why, why are the deacon's kids so bad in church? And, you know, the punchline is because they hang out with the preacher's kids. You know, how, how, is, how are his kids in their lives? You can look at example. Does that mean his children are perfect? No, nobody has perfect children and nobody's a perfect parent. But within the home, there has to be control. And then Paul gives a very common sense explanation to that. Verse five, look at, he says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? How's he going to manage God's family if he can't manage his own family? And your family and mine are to be microcosms of the church, to be little churches, if you will, showing the order of God and, and as, our, as our God and Christ as our head and so forth. That's to be the family. You can't manage the church if you can't manage your own family. Then next, elders must be able to handle the word. Look with me at verse 3 or chapter three, verse two, excuse me, the last part of verse two, it just simply says, an able teacher. Of the 15 qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, this is the only one that doesn't deal with his character. This deals with his skill. Just one, amazingly, that deals with his skill. He's an able teacher, and this doesn't mean that every elder is a gifted teacher. 
I don't believe that's what it means at all. Able meaning he's able to handle the word. Not all of our elders here in Nags Church are gifted teachers, and that's okay. And if a man's not a gifted teacher, that doesn't mean he's not called to be a pastor, but he's just probably not called to do what I do and be the teaching pastor, the primary teacher of the, of the church on Sundays. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, that some pastors, he said, labor in the word. That's what they do. They labor. The word labor there is a Greek word that means to work to the point of exhaustion. They spend time in the word, studying and teaching. But every pastor, they may not be the teaching pastor, but every pastor teaches and every pastor is able to handle God's word. And again, we teach in a bunch of different ways. To Titus, Paul especially says elders must be able to refute those who might oppose the teaching. And he would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 to cut it straight. I enjoy driving down through rural areas of the countryside where there are farms, don't you? And I like going, driving especially when the, in, in the middle of the summer when the, when the corn's not quite as high as an elephant's eye, you know, and you can drive down the highway by the cornfields and you see all the rows and you look at, and they're just perfectly, str- I'm, I'm just amazed by farmers. How they, it's like they got out with a measuring tape and snapped lines I've, from my carpentry background. And they got those things just perfectly straight and you drive back and go, man, look at that. That's amazing. I could never do that. They plow the field straight as they plant the seed. That's what Paul told Timothy. Hey, Timothy, when you teach the word, plow it straight as you plant the seed. Cut it straight. Be accurate when handling the word of God. To Titus, Paul wrote that the apostles must be, in Titus 1.9, you must be holding to the faithful message as taught. This is the faithful message as taught. Taught by who? Taught by Jesus. Taught by the apostles. Written down in the word of God. Hold to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage and with with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now, there's nobody here but us and God, so let's be real honest with each other for a moment. Would you agree with me that there are some things in this book that are hard to deal with? Some things in this book that are hard to live? Some things in this book that are hard for me to accept or to understand? Would you agree with me on that? Anybody agree with me on that? Yeah, grunt if you do. Okay, lots of grunts. There are, there are things, and there may be some things that I've, I've already shared this morning or that I shared last week when we talked about discipline in the church that we read that and we go, cheapers, that just doesn't seem fair. But it's the way God has set things up and the way God has done things and it's not easy to understand, but there it is in the Bible. And let me say this, because I know, because I'm the guy up here, if you think those things are hard to hear, try teaching them to a whole bunch of people. Do the teaching. Not easy. God has given us this book and he's preserved this book for thousands of years for us to be using as our source of all we believe in practice. But the good news is the Bible's not all about just how to avoid bad stuff, is it? I mean, there's a lot of that in there, but that's not really what it's all about. It's mostly about how to enjoy all the great stuff that God has for us in this life. And the Bible reveals God and it reveals his heart 
and his plan to us and for us. It's, it's light. I love Psalm 119. It's all about the word of God. And it says a whole lot of things about it, but some of the more from it's light and lamp to our feet and our path. It's, it's sweeter than honey. It's more valuable than gold, he says in that psalm. The word of God, it's like food to our hungry souls. I, I found your word, he says, in it, and I did eat them. It's like water streams in the desert. It's all these things, pictures that, the, that God gives us in the word. It keeps us on the right path and shows us when we're straying. So there is lots of biblical emphasis on the elders' teaching in the scripture, in this passage, isn't there? And our elders know that this time, each Sunday, when we come together and we open up the Bible, we proclaim its truths and we explain its meaning and we apply its message, is just one of the ways we as pastors convey to you how much God loves you. Teaching might be, again, one-on-one. It might be counseling. It might simply be answering a question that you've asked us. God wants you to be taught in his word. And we do not take that for granted here at Nags Head Church. Now, verse 6, elders must be mature believers. Must be mature believers. He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a new convert. This goes back to being a mature believer, which is what the word elder means, doesn't it? It doesn't mean necessarily he's an old man, but it means he's been around the block a time or two in his walk with the Lord in his faith. He's walked the journey and he survived the temptations. And what comes with maturity? The Bible tells us that with maturity comes wisdom. I'm so glad God gave me gray hair. And I don't cover it up and make it some other color because the Bible says gray hair is a sign of wisdom. And I want people to think, at least think I'm kind of wise. But you know, I've been around a while and our elders have, and we need elders who are wise. They need to be proven that they're faithful. That takes time to learn the word so that we can teach it and explain it and counsel with it and do so accurately. And then lastly, elders must have a good reputation in the community. Look at verse 7. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. That's Paul. Outsiders is one of Paul's words to describe the unchurched, those not in the faith. He must have a good reputation amongst outsiders. Why? So that he doesn't fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. What is the world? The question we ask about elders who are leading our church. What kind of reputation does he have outside the church, with those he does business with, with those he employs perhaps, with, with his, his um, co-workers, his neighbors. What kind of reputation? And that's important, and here's why. This is why that's so important. The unchurched community will see a, somebody who's a pastor, a leader in the church, and watch that man's life. And if they see hypocrisy in that man's life, if they see shallowness in that life, if they see he's, he's preaching one thing, but he's living another, that will cast aspersion. That will, that will be cast negatively, not only on that man, but on the entire church, won't it? They'll think things, well, I could never go to that church because so-and-so is, is, a, is a pastor there, is a leader there. Why would I want to go there? I know how he lives. So that's very important because the unchurched community will judge the church community, us, based upon what they see in our leaders. Now, you need to know, Nag said, church, that before a man is considered to be an elder here, he's judged by all of these qualifiers. 
because this is not something that we came up with. This is God's standard. And what God considers most important is the elder's character. Who is he? Not what was he before Christ gave him new life. Why don't we look at that? Because that's past. That's been forgiven. That's been washed away. It's been wiped out. The reality is that every one of our pastors are just like the rest of us. What do you mean? We're simply sinners saved by grace who can stumble and we can fall. But when shepherds fall, who suffers the most? If the shepherd of the flock is annihilated, wiped out, removed, who suffers the most? Sheep. Because then the predators can run wild. So how do we as a church, how do we respond to our pastors teach an example? Several ways. Let me run through them quickly with you. First of all, recognize those whom God qualifies. Recognize them. God's called and qualified them. Recognize them as elders. Hold them to accuracy in their teaching. Right? I like, I like the Bereans mentioned in the book of Acts, who after Paul taught them, it says, and they went back and they opened up the Old Testament and they researched it to see, make sure that what Paul told them was true. Hold them to accuracy in their teaching. Respond to the Bible with obedience. When you hear the teaching of the word of God, obey. And let me just add this. Here's, here's the tough part to that. And you'll agree with me. Whether I understand it or not, whether or not it's politically correct, whether or not I agree, because we admitted that it's not all easy to grasp. Obey. Let's read this verse, this next verse together that Paul wrote to Timothy. And here's why. Can we read this together? All scripture, we have that? Yep. All scripture, read it with me. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that, when it says man of God there, it's referring to all of us. So that we can be able to do what God wants us to do. What's the foundation of that? The scriptures. Then hold them accountable for their example. Hold them accountable for their example. If you see me, if you see me driving down this road, I'd love to use this as an example because I have had problems with this in the past. If you see me driving down this road and, and it's obvious that I'm angry because I think everybody's going too slow or whatever, or I'm in a big hurry and I'm weaving in and out of traffic and I'm blowing my horn and I'm waving at people in a way I shouldn't be and, and you know, you see, there goes Rick, good grief. Got nags head church stickers on his truck, you know. Hold me accountable, pull, you know, call me up, say, hey, Rick, I just saw you drive. Was that you? I saw driving down the road acting like a, a crazy man, acting like you hated everybody in the world. Hold us accountable for our example. And then imitate their faith. Again, go back to Hebrews 13, 7. Imitate their faith. Not a false imitation, but follow in their footsteps. And then lastly, I think this is, goes without saying, but I'll say it. Pray for your shepherds. Pray for your pastors. I really believe here in Nags Head Church that God has blessed you and me with some fantastic godly men who oversee us, including myself. They oversee us and they love us and they protect us and they teach us. I thank God for my pastors and I hope you do as well. Let's pray. Lord, would you take your word now as we've gone through rather rapidly, but we've gone through your, your word about 
how you qualify the men that you appoint to shepherd the flock that you, your son Jesus, gave his life for, died for, shed his blood for. And I pray, Father, that you will help us as, as a church always, always, always to go to the word of God. And Lord, whether I understand it or not, whether it's culturally acceptable or not, whatever my disagreement, my, my preconceived ideas, that I'll go to the word and ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach me and change me and renew my mind. We thank you. We love your church, and we want to love your church, Lord, as much as you do. We're your plan for the world to get out the gospel. Help us to be faithful at that here at Nags Head Church. And bless our leaders. Bless our pastors. In your name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others. Reach the world.